being completely transparent, this is uh, something that I have walked through once or twice before uh, in different contexts, and I, I did it more of a preaching type thing. I don't necessarily want to do that this time. Um, really just more like a lecture and then maybe even us discuss it a little bit. And it's going to be coming out of the book of Acts, and I know Mark has spent some time in Acts, and now he's in Galatians. I was going to say Philippians. I was going to be wrong. Galatians, and then he's going to come back to Acts. But I, I did want to kind of look at this because I think it's uh, just important, but also very encouraging for us. And that's going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And um, this is actually going to be something I'll preach in two weeks, maybe not the same sermon, but something similar to our congregation, because we started the book of Acts about three weeks ago, and I'm a little bit quicker than Mark is through books of the Bible. And so we're going to make it this far in just a few weeks. But this evening, kind of as we look at this, we're going to be looking at this idea of ordinary means. Um, and... We're going to get into what that means exactly in just a moment. I just want to pray for us. And as I do that, is there any specific things we can be praying for in this moment together? Sarah. I'm going to say Sarah, yeah. Oh, wow. So what we're going to be doing uh, in this is we're going to be exploring the formation of the Christian church. And this isn't new to you guys. You walk through Acts uh, pretty uh, in, in detail. And so what we're going to be looking at is the formation of the early church. Uh, and really to be more specific than that, we're going to be looking at the way in which Jesus' disciples first accomplished what he called them to do. And we could look at Matthew 28 or even Mark's account, but just, just flip over with me to chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right. So when we look at that, this is just a what we refer to commonly as the Great Commission. Matthew 28 uh, would be summed up with go, therefore, and make disciples. And so what we're going to be looking at in this very early part in Acts is really how the disciples focused on and accomplished this mission. And so let's read the scripture together just really quick, and we're going to come back to it in just a moment as we go into detail. Starting in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And the day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. 
and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as we look at this, uh, just kind of be able to follow me just a little bit. Um, I'm going to be looking at this in two main ways, and then we're going to look at uh, that into detail. The first one is God's ordinary means of discipleships. God's ordinary means of discipleship are His God's Word, Christian community, and prayer. And then from there, we're going to look at God uses ordinary means to do extraordinary work of salvation. Um, before I get into the opening example, I just want to briefly just say this. The reason why this is encouraging, I think for me, and I pray for you as well, is we live in a society that, um, in a church culture, I'll even go that far to say, we live in a church culture that tends to attempt to reach the lost with various means and methods that are extravagant, that are smoke and mirrors per se, or in ways that I would argue is probably not the most biblical or beneficial way. But what we see in the books of Acts is very simply that they reach people in some very ordinary ways, in ways that your church and Redeemer Church can accomplish within our own context. And so we don't have to be a church that is offering the best child care. We don't have to be a church that is offering the best concerts or men's conferences. We don't have to be a church that is doing all of these extraordinary things. We just have to be a people of God that are reaching people in the ways in which God has shown us through Scripture. And so as we do that, I want to begin by just looking at this word ordinary. In an odd, it is an odd word. This is because it is a word that is so relative to the individual or situation in which it is being used. What I mean by that is just a personal example is that for me, I work for the post office and I work Monday through Saturday, six days a week. And my schedule is down packed. It's very simple. Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I work from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock, 1230 to 4.30, and then I go home. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I go in at 7 and I leave at 9. That is an ordinary day for me. But that's not all. I, I do church work. I read scripture. I read extra books just to educate myself. I wake up. I, I aid my wife, not as well as I should, but I aid my wife in getting kids ready for school. Me and my wife, uh, every week we'll go on some sort of a date. If it's uh, Mexican food at the kitchen table after all of the kids went to sleep or if it's my 13-year-old watching the other three children so we can sneak away for 45 minutes we have church on sunday we have what we call community groups which is people coming in on into our home doing bible studies on sunday nights about three to four two to three times a week i'm meeting one-on-one -on -one with somebody with some form of discipleship see that's what ordinary week looks like for me <clears throat> but if i were to ask you what does your ordinary week look like i would argue that most of our weeks would look different but to you, it is ordinary. So much so that maybe you're like me. It rolls around to a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And sometimes it just feels like it's really just, it really feels like it should be Thursday. Right? Ordinary, we just get trapped into the mundane, everyday life that we live. See, that is what makes the reality of this, morning, this evening's text impactful. We do not have to seek anything extraordinary or extravagant 
to be a devout follower of Jesus or a, even a relevant church, we simply commit to the rest and the ordinary means of discipleship. And so, I don't think I have to do this for you guys, but I want to. Um, so far in the book of Acts, just to catch us up with where we're at, what we've seen is the promise of the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 5. Then 6 through 11, we see Jesus ascends back into heaven. 12 through 26 is the replacing of Judas with Matthias. And then the verses 2, chapter 2, 1 through 13 is the falling of the Holy Spirit where the disciples are empowered. Verses 14 through 40 of chapter 2 is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people come to Christ. And though we've just a very quick overview of what's going on in that context, I want you to look at verse 41 with me just real quick. This is what's going on right before verse 42. Pretty simple, right? 41, 42. Kind of happens next. It says, So those who received his word were baptized. So these individuals that come to Christ in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized, and then what else happens? They were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So these 3,000 souls that had come to Christ in salvation after the preaching of God's word by Peter are saved. They're baptized. They trust in the risen Savior. The word and they are talking about believers. Those are newly converted to Christ. But what is the disciples' means of not only training them, but also working towards making disciples of new people. Well, that's when you get to verse 42, and you pick right back up what we read earlier. It says, and they, the and they, as we just read, pointing back to those 3,000 souls, and as well as the disciples and the 70 disciples, as well as the women that were gathered with Christ, um, right above, before his ascension and then even with the disciples afterwards. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and prayers. What we're going to see in this, first and foremost, is what did they devote themselves to? These ordinary means of discipleship. The first one, though, is it says that they devoted themselves, what? To the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? Um, it's really easy for us to overlook that because we wouldn't look at it in the same way of what we're doing in here because I am certainly not an apostle regardless of what other denominations may call their spiritual leaders. There's not an apostle that meet today. There's not an apostle that exists today. Brother Mark, uh, Pastor Mark is not an apostle. He's a preacher of God's word. But what are they devoting themselves to? This is the apostles' teaching. So we have this in the form of the New Testament and the Old Testament today. We have the teaching of God here with us. So we see this idea of teaching and preaching God's word. The teaching the apostles was central to everything that they did as believers and a church. Meaning it was something not only that they did, but they gathered as a church. Some other places you see it just in these small verses. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but look at verse 46. Verse 46, this is in day by day, attending the temple. This is breaking bread in their homes and praising God. They're devoting themselves 
to the, the teaching of God's Word in various forms. They're devoting themselves to the teaching of the disciples, which was passed on to them through Christ Himself. That's why in the Great Commission, what Jesus told the disciples more specifically than Acts 1.8, He says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then He says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. They're devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Why? Because the apostles were the ones that were teaching with the authority of Christ. So very simply, if this is one of the first ordinary means of discipleship, what does it mean for us in particular? It means first and foremost, I believe more important than anything else, and I don't think I have to say this to you guys because on a cold, rainy Wednesday night, you are here, but it's committing yourself to being a part of church, to sit under the preaching of God's Word, if it be on a Sunday morning or if it be on a Wednesday night, that you would commit yourself to that, that you would take notes, that you would pay attention, that you would learn from, you would glean from God's Word, not because of the merit of the man teaching or preaching, not certainly because of the wisdom or the age that comes with the man teaching. Because look at me, I'm 30, I'm fairly wet behind the ears, as many would say. There's much I can learn about Scripture. It's not about who is preaching or teaching, but rather about the Word of God that they are teaching and preaching on. So you do this by making these things a priority, but I would argue that it has to go a little bit farther than that, that you have to find personal time in God's Word, that you have to make it a priority in your lives, that you would commit to reading Scripture not only as an individual, but possibly as I look across the room and I see many married couples committing to reading it with your spouses to learn from it. Everybody's schedule looks different. Everybody's capability looks different. I'm not one to say that you should read X amount of chapters a day, but rather you should take God's Word in and you should read it and apply it and soak it into your life so that you can look more like the Savior who has redeemed you. So first and foremost, the first ordinary means of discipleship that the early church uses after these 3,000 souls were saved. The teaching of God's word. So if we're going to be a church that reaches people, if we're going to be people who reach people, the first thing we have to do is commit ourselves to the right preaching of God's word, which I confidently can say you guys are doing here, and the regular commitment to that as well as personal life. Second, though, if you keep reading with me in verse 42, it says the fellowship to the breaking of the bread. To the fellowship of the breaking of the bread. I'm going to look at this really in two ways. First and foremost, he says the fellowship. Look at verse 44 with me. This is, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This. Let's take a fun sports poll. I don't know if you guys are any sports fans. Is any any Mississippi State fans in here? Raise your hand proud. You shouldn't be that proud, but raise your hand proud. Ole Miss? You should be less proud if you are here. Any Alabama fans? I know Mark would be happy in this moment, okay? He's going to be riding to work one day this week and raising his hand. Uh, I'm an Alabama fan. Auburn fans? Did I miss anybody's? Shedrick Sport. Anybody a baseball fan? Who do you like? Who do you go for? Braves? 
we got that in common. But let's just say you went for the Jays. We would have not have that in common, right? You're a state fan. I'm an Alabama fan. We don't have that in common. Look at me. I'm younger. You, some of you guys are not as young, right? Um, I work at a post office. I don't think any of you guys worked at a post office. You have raised your kids. I'm still raising my kids. Do we have all things in common? Certainly not. I mean, take the idea of the disciples alone. There's fishermen. There's tax collectors. There's Jews. There's non-Jews. You got people that, they may not be non-Jews. I, I misspoke there. But regardless, did they have everything in common? No. So what does, what does Luke mean by this? He says having all things in common, meaning they had everything in common that they needed to be unified, and that was Christ. So they had fellowship together. It went beyond earthly things to a spiritual heavenly thing, and that is Christ. If I keep talking, can you hear me? Okay. I, I just can't, I, I don't know what it sounds like out there, okay? All right, so look at verse 45, where he goes on to say, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing those proceeds to all who had need. So not only were they committing themselves and had all things in common, but they were doing something necessary to provide for those in their group of people, in their church. They were selling their possessions and they were distributing as need needed, as need was. Now, to be clear here, it's not talking about communism. It's not talking about a forced reaction. It's talking about giving to those who had need from the heart. That they would sell their extra possessions and they would give to those whom they loved so those who they loved would be provided for. It's not a, a forced thing that the church had to do this. I would actually argue that when you look in Acts chapter 5 and when Ananias and Sapphira dies, it's not because they gave they only gave a portion of what they sold the land for. It's that they gave a portion of what they sold the land for and then they said that they gave all that the land was sold for. It's that they lied. And so the reality here is that they were in community with each other. They were in fellowship together. But not only fellowship, but look at verse 46. <coughs> even at the end of verse four, yeah, at, even at the end of verse 42, it says, "To the breaking of bread, and then verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes." Now there's two possibilities here. He could be specifically talking about communion, which is a huge possibility. And I would argue that they regularly did this when they met together as Christ commanded them. But the other side of it is that they were simply eating meals together. That they not only were fellowshipping, fellowshipping together, but they were eating meals together, much like you guys do on this side of the sanctuary, right? They were eating these meals together. But let me ask you this. Is there anything more mundane than eating meals? Like, I don't know what your schedule's like, but most likely when you got hungry this morning or you got hungry at lunchtime or maybe right before you came here, you ate dinner. Did you really have to think about eating dinner? No, right? You, you naturally do it. You get hungry, so you go and you eat it, right? I, on my, before I left the house today, I was fairly hungry. I knew I would eat it when I got home, so I grabbed a handful of chips and I ate it on the door out. 
I don't even think about that. It's just something that happened. Why? Because it's an instinct within us. There's nothing more mundane or more ordinary or simple than the idea of eating together. But I would press you and say that there's probably not a better way to get to know someone than to have them into your home or be willing to go into their home and eat a meal with them. And we see this certainly what the church did in this time, day by day, breaking bread in their homes. So I think the simple application there would just be a charge, maybe an encouragement, maybe a challenge, however you want to word that. Find a believer, possibly even a non-believer, and invite them into your home this week. And maybe you don't want to cook. Invite them into the Mexican restaurant or whatever may be near you. Um, Mexican's all we got in Caledonia, so that's my natural go-to. Invite them into your home. Invite them into your life and eat a meal with them. There's some, something amazing about that. Simple, mundane, and ordinary, but amazing. The third thing we see, and the third ordinary means of discipleship that we find in Acts is found in the last part of verse 42. And it says, and the prayers. This is my shortest point, but I want to argue that it's probably the most important point. Much like that of the teaching of the apostles, we should rightly understand that prayer was central to everything and every aspect of the church's life. So as they were attending the temple, as they were breaking bread, as they were praising God, certainly prayer was at the center of all they did. And the reason why I am confident in that is that when you go back to the first part of chapter 1 of Acts, when you go first back to that, what you see is time in and time out. They were devoting themselves to prayer in the upper room, waiting on the Spirit to come. The reality here is that it is no different for us. The most important thing we could do as a church <coughs> would be to pray that God would do work. To pray that God, as He is a sovereign and loving God, would save those whom He is going to save and that He would use us to do so. This is hard for me. I'm going to be honest. I'm a consumer of information. I listen to podcasts regularly. Um, anybody listen to podcasts in here? Yes, no, you do? I listen to podcasts on three times speed. Three times speed uh, is how I listen to my podcasts every day. And about, about 30 that I listen to on a normal day. Um, I like taking in information. I like to read books. Um, I also live in a house of four kids and my wife. There's not very many silent moments of my day. There was before I started working there in Caledonia. only work about five miles from my house, so it's only about a five-mile trip. I don't allow a lot of silence in my day to do this like I should. It's something that I'm working towards. It's something that we're working towards as Redeemer. So this application for you is the same for me. It's those car rides when you're alone or with your spouse. This may sound crazy, but praying while taking a shower, while doing dishes, cutting the grass, the reality is very simple. It's just find something in some time throughout your day and be intentional to pray. Prayer aligns our heart and our desires with the hearts and desires of God. 
And so the more we pray, the more we think and desire what God desires. That's why scripture tells us that pray the desires of your heart and they will be given to you. Why? Because the closer you get to the Lord and the more you pray that God's will be done, the more your will and his will will line up. Not that you're going to be perfect in that, but the reality is that you begin to pray that God would send lost people to you to share the gospel with, new believers to disciple, whatever the case may be, I can almost guarantee that you will start to be, your eyes be open to those encounters. So before we move on to the second main point in this text, really just want to pull us back to these three ordinary means. God's word, Christian community, and prayer. That's how the early church flourished. As we see here, it wasn't anything miraculous. If you actually read this, the very smallest detail here, it says, and they came upon every soul, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, right? It does say that, but it's a very small detail here. He doesn't elaborate on that. He doesn't emphasize that. He doesn't repeat that, but he's repeating what they're doing while they're gathering and praying and meeting together. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to simply circle around these ordinary means, commit to them, encourage your pastor to preach God's word rightly as I know he does. Invite those to come along with you. Teach those who need to know Jesus about Jesus. As they're saved, teach them how to follow Jesus. So those are the ordinary means. But the second point I'm going to make is God uses ordinary means to do extraordinary work of salvation. Look with me. At this phrase here, found in 47, it says praising God, but after that it says, and having favor with all people. Now we know not too long after this, Paul begins to kill Christians. So the word all there doesn't necessarily mean every person like the disciples and the new followers of Jesus, simply saying having favor with people. We don't want to overthink this. It just means they had favor with people outside of their community. They had favor with those within the community. That they lived gracious and forgiving lives. That they were loving people. They were people of affection. They were people of deeds. So when they looked around and people saw these Christians, they saw people that maybe looked different and acted differently, but they were doing good things. Not, not, not the idea of a social justice that we may kind of see go on nowadays, but rather they were people that lived as if they'd been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. They were people that had much grace and mercy to show in their life. They were people that loved people. One big example that I really am just drawn to in the early church, and this isn't found in Scripture, this is found in early church fathers' writings, is that often, as some years later after this was written, when, uh, when persecution began in the church, the individuals would lay down their life for the gospel. And if they had children, those children would be then led to the dump to live or to die, whatever may occur of them. And the early church believers would come in and they would take these children into their homes and provide for them. 
That's a very small detail, but it's a very important detail. It said they had favor with those around them. Why? Because they were good people, not because of who they were, but because of what Christ had done for them, and they had transformed their lives. It's a very simple application here for us, is that as people that have been forgiven of our sins, contrary to the judgment you deserve, we should be, and the, deserve, the judgment I deserve, we should, be peop- we should not be people that are known as cheap tipper, tippers, bad employee, angry driver. This one may not fold to you guys. That dad, that mom at the sporting event, or that granddad or that grandmom at the sporting event, or the neglectful spouse. If we have been marked with the gospel, we should live as if we've been marked with the gospel. They had favor with people, not because of who they were, but because of who they had become in Christ. And what was the outcome of that? The outcome of that was at the end of verse 47. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. as they committed himself to ordinary means, it not only brought favor to those around them, but it ultimately led to the salvation of people day by day. Now, does that mean day, every day? We don't know, right? We were not there. But regardless, it means that people were coming to Christ in salvation and becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, and they were committing themselves to the discipleship of the, and the apostles' teaching and the teaching in the fellowship of the breaking of the bread and prayers, that this was a constant cycle. It started with the disciples. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls are saved. They commit to this teaching, and they commit to this community, and they commit to prayer, and then constantly others are coming to Christ in salvation. So much so is that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this. Very simple in this. Is love people by treating them good. Share the gospel with them. And then trust God into saving them. See, these ordinary means aren't things that we can manipulate. That if we have the right preaching or if we have the right community or if we pray just enough that God's going to do this miraculous and extraordinary work of salvation. It's not as if if we just hold our fingers right. I, I actually, this is a spur of the moment example, okay? My grandfather, maybe you guys have heard this, was two things he would tell me when we were fishing and I was not able to catch fish. The first one's more funny than the second one. The first one... <clears throat> Mind it, I'm seven, eight-year-old boy. He said, well, it's because you don't have a chew in your mouth. And then he would go and try to give me his dip can. The second one, though, he said, you're just not holding your mouth right. As if holding your mouth a certain way was going to make you catch the fish. Now, I may have been talking too much, and he may have been telling me to be quiet, right? But regardless, there's no magical bullet here, right? In catching fish, it wasn't that if I held my mouth just right, I was going to be able to catch the biggest bass in the pond. Same here. Just because we do these things doesn't mean that God is going to work. But what I would argue very simply is that if we do not do these things, God will not provide lasting fruit in the lives of ourselves, our families, and our church. But what we certainly can know is that when we commit ourselves to the right preaching and teaching of God's word, 
to the biblical and Christian community and to prayer. Scripture is clear that it's God doing an extraordinary work. Why? Because God is the one doing the work, not us. So this evening, um, I just want to encourage you as an individual, don't trust in the extraordinary or extravagant or over-spiritual practices to make us feel closer or secure in your salvation. Rest in your salvation that Jesus has brought us while trusting God and who is going to sanctify us through his ordinary means of discipleship. We're not Catholic or anything else that is similar. Saying prayers, reading the Bible, going to church, just to check it off of our list does not make us more spiritual than anyone else. But committing rightly to these things with the right heart and a heart of worship is certainly where we find much worth and goodness. And as a church, I want to end with this, because this is not only an encouragement for you, but an encouragement for me. Let's not place the worship services or programs or special events at the place they should not be. But rather, let's place these ordinary means of discipleship as a priority in our lives, as we trust that God will save those that he is placing in our lives. Simply this. God is the God that uses ordinary things to do extraordinary things. So often, we flip the script and we try to do extraordinary things so that they experience God, but they're not experiencing an extraordinary God. They're experiencing an ordinary God crafted by the hands of man. A prayer for your church, my church, for you, for me, is that we would simply trust in God's means of discipleship, not that that the church has created wrongly or that we have placed in our minds wrongly or even that that the culture around us has forced us into but simply trust in Christ himself to do the things that he did 2,000 years ago in the life of these people. Before we pray or anything like that, <clears throat> I want to just see if there's any questions or comments uh, about this text or what anything I need to clarify. Yeah. That's right. That's right.
Yeah, because in this context, um, most of these individuals that are coming to Christ in salvation were Jewish in nature. Uh, some would have been Gentiles converted due to Judaism. We see they were present in the day of Pentecost. But then others would have just been Jewish by birth, but practicing Jews, right? And so if they would have abandoned their faith to follow Jesus, they would have been saying that we're going to follow the blaspheming crucified one. So they would have probably lost their relationships with their family. Um, and the family culture then was much different than now. So they could have lost their homes or whatever the case may be, right? There's a lot at stake. Yes. Yeah. But I think the good reminder there, though, um, is there's still people that give up a lot to follow Jesus. And so they still need people that are willing to give up what they need to give up to provide for them. Um, I think a good example was um, I listened to a missionary that I met in person a few years back. His father was a, a Muslim priest in Africa. And when he gave up, when he came to Christ in salvation, his father tied him up and threw him in the bush country for a lion to eat him. And there was a woman that saved him from the bush country <coughs> and then raised him essentially he was older but became a mother to him <coughs> but then I also think about um, just circumstances around us people that um, and this was kind of what I would press us in is using what we have for the gospel's sake our homes our vehicles our relationships um, using that for the sake of the gospel um, that's hard to do because we naturally don't trust people, but it's something that we certainly should strive towards. Um, because we see here clearly not everybody sold their house because they're meeting in homes. So there was homes for them to meet in. People still had what they needed to survive. Um, but when they were doing that, they were certainly providing out of uh, excess. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. A modern context would be is if I had a brother in Christ that lost his job, we'll just take it to the fullest extent of COVID, lost his job to COVID, and I have a $60,000. And listen, I don't know you guys, so if I'm using an example that hits personal, I'm not trying to make it hit personal, okay? Uh, but let's say I have a $60,000 bass boat in my driveway. How can I justify paying for a $60,000 bass boat when I have a brother in Christ that is... Um, lost everything due to circumstances outside of their control and i think that would be an example of that that would be a more modern in context and certainly there's many things that would fall into that category anything else or any other questions well it hasn't been that long since i've been here but i'm also willing to take any questions regarding where we're at as redeemer um, i will give one update that i think is just uh, the most encouraging thing for me personally, but not a huge deal, um, but it is a huge deal to me, 
Um, but as many of you know, most of you should know at least, um, one of our main goals in starting the church there in Columbus was to reach Air Force families and Air Force individuals. And we're still a smaller church, like much like you guys, which is perfectly fine. I'm content with that. I'm, as we looked at tonight, trusting in ordinary means. Um, but the, two weeks ago, um, this past Sunday was weird because of the ice storm that was supposedly coming through, but didn't come through anyway. Um, it was interesting. Um, but the two weeks ago, um, during our Sunday service, there was, uh, we, we always have at least six kids, eight kids. We all have a bunch of kids. Uh, but then on top of that, there was the, um, about out in the sanctuary, not in, I call it a sanctuary, but it's not a sanctuary. In the meeting space, not in the kids' space, um, there was about 10, 12, 12 adults, and half of those were Air Force, um, which was encouraging to me because I've looked into this a lot before starting, and even since then, still reading some resources and things of that such, of uh, people that have done similar things in trying to reach military communities. And one of the common threads is that often um, it takes several years to see any kind of military community formed within the church. And so we had um, five that Sunday, and we commissioned two since um, that we started. So, so far in the life of Redeemer, we've had seven, which is not a huge number, like I said, but when it's half the number or a little bit over half the number, I'm perfectly not, not only happy and content, but praising God for that. Um, and so that's the big thing that I wanted to bring to you guys. Outside of that, there's not a lot of things changed uh, in the last few weeks. Um, just continuing to press forward, teach God's word faithfully. Um, we're going to be elder-led, and we've got about three months left in the elder training process for two of the elders that are going to come alongside me. They're already functioning in that way in a lot of ways. Uh, and teaching and preaching once a month as well. And so um, outside of that, I don't have a lot to say. Um, I'm just curious if you guys have any questions about any of that. Since I'm here, might as well take anything you guys want to know. Yes. It's good. Yeah. Um, we don't want, I, I say we, I don't want quick growth because I don't know what to do with quick growth. So I am perfectly content building those around me. Um, uh, I'm not Peter. I might quit. Um, uh, I don't know what I would do because <clears throat> just for the sake of going here, if 3,000 souls come to Christ in a day, in our context, you wouldn't have anywhere to put them. And new believers don't give to the church, so you'd still have to work your job, but you'd have 3,000 people you'd have to deal with. So I don't know what I would do. But um, maybe God wants that to happen. We'll see. I doubt it, but we'll see. All right. Well, I want to pray for us, and if there's anything else, I'll, I'll stick around for a bit um, and all of those things. So... Uh, let's let's pray together. <coughs> <coughs> Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you. God, we pray now that as we get ready to depart from here, God, you would keep us all safe. 
um, on the road in this rain and thunder and lightning. God, my prayer would be that as we leave from here, God, we would trust in your ordinary means. God, it is, um, it is you who saved us. It is you who saved those around us. And Father, we pray that for those or that we would do the same in the life of those around us now that do not know you. God, it is your will and your power and your might that grows a church spiritually, physically, numerically. God, I pray that if that would be your desire for our church as well as the community of grace, God, your will would be done. Ultimately, Father, let us lean into you, not manufacture things to grow your church. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.